Welcome to Midpoint Monday on 88.5 FM and WMNF.org. I'm Sean Canan. The Florida legislature begins its 2021 session tomorrow. Democrats have introduced several bills to try to rein in gun violence. Later on in the show, we'll speak with the sponsor of one of those bills, Miami area state Senator Annette Tadeo. Her bill would repeal the Florida law that forbids local jurisdictions from enacting gun laws that are more restrictive than state law. We'll hear about Florida gun legislation in just a few minutes, but first up, here's an epidemiologist who is warning that he expects another coronavirus surge in Florida this spring because of a combination of factors. One is that Florida leads the nation in the number of cases of the more contagious UK variant of the coronavirus. That's also called B117. And Dr. Eric Feigel-Ding, who is a senior fellow at the Federation of American Scientists, says another factor is that Governor Ron DeSantis refuses to take statewide mitigation efforts to stop the spread of the coronavirus, like requirements for wearing masks and a halt to indoor dining. So here's my interview with epidemiologist Dr. Eric Feigel-Ding, who predicts a surge in Florida in the spring. I want to welcome you, Dr. Feigelding, to WMNF. Thanks so much for coming on to talk about the coronavirus and talk about some of the variants. Let's start with the good news, at least. In Florida, cases, hospitalizations, and deaths are going down, right? Yeah, that is very good news, and I'm glad to see that. Uh, at the same time, uh, while the cases are going down, hospitalization going down, the proportion of cases that are the more contagious and possibly the more severe B117 variant from UK is inching up. And it's now over 15%, approaching 20% of all cases. So that is very worrisome because as the old strain is declining, the more contagious one is replacing it and becoming more successful in dominating. And that may lead to some worry in the next coming weeks or months. And we'll talk more about that B117 or UK variant in just a second, but let's remind our listeners, how does any virus like the coronavirus become variant? How does it get variants? Right. A variant means just a special mutated combination that is different from the original. It's a mutant, uh, basically, but a variant is more than just one mutation. Sometimes what gives a variant its power is a cluster of mutations that allows it to usually three properties, either become more contagious as in it binds to human receptors and replicates faster usually, or it is more severe as in the viral load is higher and infects and makes you sicker. Or the third way is that it is more evasive against prior antibodies and prior vaccinations. And by evasive, I don't mean completely dodging it. It just, you know, it ducks a few more antibodies in your immune system than it previously does. So these are the properties of variants that usually makes it a little more troublesome than the traditional wild type, common type. And we know enough about the UK variants, also called B117, that we know that it's more contagious, that it spreads more quickly. And also, uh, Florida leads the country in the number of cases of that UK variant. And you've looked at the math, and based on the doubling time of this, you anticipate that it could become the most dominant variant in Florida. That's correct. The B117 is already shown beyond a shadow of a doubt that it is more contagious by 40 to 60% by some estimates. 
And uh, there's also evidence that is 30 to 70% more severe, as in higher rates of hospitalization in ICU and deaths. That's also from the UK. So, you know, this B117 is spreading across the country. But as I mentioned, it's starting to replace. Although cases are overall coming down, it's starting to replace the previous one. So in certain ways, this is almost like a 2.0 potential pandemic virus that the old one is dying out. And, but this one is somehow uh, spreading so much faster that what used to hold the old virus in check, the less transmissible 1.0, 1.2 virus in check now doesn't work when you multiply it by 1.5, when this virus has faster transmissibility and contagiousness. So an R, for example, that is less than one, R is a reproductive number. For every person who infects, how many additional people? If it's one, it means it's even. If it's higher than one, then the epidemic grows. So many states were at 0.8.9, so slowly our cases are dropping. But that's with the old variant for the most part. And if you multiply that by 1.5, then that you get a number that's greater than one. That means the more contagious one, under the same scenario, whatever the mitigation lockdown you have, it'll keep growing. And that is the concern. Florida, it's declining overall, but the more contagious one is becoming more and more popular. And it might become dominant by mid-March. And it could completely replace the uh, old strain by probably April or May. And that is when we're going to see a new surge, probably in April or May. On Twitter, you said, come on, Florida, I don't want to be that epidemiologist dude who has to remind Governor Ron DeSantis daily that he has a civic responsibility to stop the outbreak of B117 in his state and its spread to the rest of the country. So how do you feel that uh, Governor DeSantis is doing when it, specifically when it comes to stopping the spread of this B117 variant? Well, Florida has some of the least restrictions. It's the most lackadaisical among many states. You know, it has indoor dining, it has, it has a lot of things that's already happening and the mass compliance is not great. But the key is that what he's seeing is he's seeing that the total cases are dropping, but he's avoiding the, the nuance that the under the drop, the underbelly of the rise of B117, it's going to cause greater problems. I'm trying to basically make him understand that the total number is deceptive because I'm trying to help him see around the corner that there's a looming disaster coming around. And the looming potential disaster is when B117 becomes dominant and becomes 80-90% of all cases. And what works now will no longer work. So it's, it's a matter of early action. We learned that last year. Early action saves lives. But right now he's not seeing that. It's just like when early on in January, February, there weren't that many cases. You could, you know, rewind a whole year and say, well, there's not that many cases. But you know what? It's growing fast. It's growing the fastest. B117 is growing the fastest in Florida of all states in the country. And it's going to unleash an epidemic. And it's going to transmit out of Florida to many other states. And so we need to stop it at its source. And that is, for the most part, Florida, where it's growing the fastest. So that's why I was trying to beseech him to listen. What would stop it? Well, what would stop it is more mitigation. What works for mitigation still works for this. It just, you have to work more aggressively. 
like you have to have much more aggressive masking. And hence I said, we should adopt double masking because we know that oftentimes one mask is not enough, especially if there's poor mask compliance. And that's the nature of masks for cloth masks, especially that cloth mask works if everyone wears it because it's source protection. It protects by masking the source of people who are carrying it. But cloth masks are not that great for inhalation protection for you inhaling it. And a problem is when a lot of people don't wear masks, it doesn't protect them if half the people don't wear masks. So you need to double mask with at least a surgical or switch to premium masks. And I think restaurants, indoor dining is too risky. Outdoor dining, I'm, I'm okay with uh, if, if there's enough spaces between tables. But also schools have to have sufficient ventilation. Ventilation is so key. Ventilation is what actually stopped the old of a pandemic in 1918. Ventilation and fresh air or air cleaning. And many buildings and schools and offices have poor ventilation. And without good ventilation or air cleaning standards, this virus, this airborne virus will continue to spread. I want to remind people that we're speaking with epidemiologist Eric Feigel-Ding, and this is WMNF's Midpoint. Keep talking a little bit about the B117 variant, which is also called the UK variant, and especially how it's spreading in Florida. You write that that variant carries a package of mutations, including many which change the structure of the spike protein that enhance its ability to bind to human ACE2 receptor, and that yields higher viral loads and may shed more virus when coughing or sneezing. So this might be one of the reasons why it's more contagious because people who have this variant are spreading it to more people. That's correct. And this property is seen by many viruses. There's tons of variants out there. But what makes a variant successful is when it can replicate faster, when it can survive better, right? And it's a survival of the fittest. The virus is evolving. And the more chances you give the virus to evolve, the better likelihood that it will proliferate and also find ways to become even better in the next generation and then in the next generation. So every person that transmit is giving it another chance to evolve, evolve, evolve again. And so the only way to stop it is a combination of vaccination and when we, the vaccines still work pretty well for B117, thankfully, and to mitigate as fast as we can. And by the best way is to go for zero COVID. Like go for zero now instead of being in this purgatory, open, close, open, close, when we could have just slammed it down and eliminated it like many countries like New Zealand, Australia, Taiwan, and even Vietnam, which not at all an island at all. So it is possible. And if you wouldn't live with, you know, a small simmering fire in your house, no firefighter will, will allow that. Firefighters want zero fire. We need zero COVID. And this is why with zero COVID, your virus can't mutate if it doesn't replicate. So this whole mutation thing, I don't want to live through more mutation cycles. I want to eliminate it. Eliminating it will prevent so much more agony in the long run. I think you briefly touched on this just a second ago. Earlier, you were saying that a variant could be more contagious, it could be more severe, and it could be evasive. And you're saying that this B117 variant that's increasing in Florida may not be as evasive as, as it could be. It still can be contained through things like 
antibodies for people who have already had coronavirus or from the vaccinations? Yeah, it, it still does work. The vaccine still works against it. The antibodies therapy still works against it. This is not entirely true for the South Africa and Brazil variants, which we believe are more evasive. Evasive means partially ducking some of the antibodies and attenuating some of the vaccine efficacy for the South Africa and Brazil. But for the B117, it still works, which means all the more importantly, vaccinate as quickly as possible. But it could get worse. And as we've seen in California, the new California variant has this triple threat of being more contagious, likely, of showing some evidence of being more evasive against antibodies and prior infection, and also possibly being more severe. So all these things, we need to stop playing around with this virus and letting it, oh, we can reopen again, let us spread a little. It's not okay, because we're going to have more of these mutations and more mutations. We don't want to play whack-a-mole for the rest of the year and for years to come. So if there are mutations, if there are variants out there, you're suggesting that one way for us to get a handle on what's there is by ramping up what's called mutation sequencing. How would that work and what good would it do? Well, sequencing is critical because unlike testing, which identifies as the virus, sequencing tells you which version of it. Early in last year, I remember the saying, no testing, no pandemic. And now the saying is no sequencing, no mutation. And we don't want to be blindsided by this. But only by sequencing enough will we know what we're up against. Are we dealing with a variant that is semi-more contagious or more contagious? Are we dealing with a variant that is uh, more severe and causes more illness or less so? And do we have a variant that evades prior people's immunity or partially uh, attenuates vaccines? We need to know that. Uh, and so we need to ramp up all these resources and surveillance. But some uh, states and leaders, they are not sequencing that much. They're basically taking the ostrich approach and sticking their head in the sand, hoping that the virus goes away. But you know what? The virus will virus. It will not just go away. And, and it's something that doesn't care about the sweet little lies that we tell it. It will do its virus thing. And especially mutate to become more infectious. And when more people are immune, you'll try to find ways to hop over the fence of people's immunity. That is what nature and evolution has taught it to do. So we have to fight back and fight back hard and not be nonchalant and not be laissez-faire as Ron DeSantis has been with the virus. Our guest is Dr. Eric Feigl-Ding, an epidemiologist, and you're listening to WMNF's Midpoint. We're going to transition now to California. We were talking about Florida and the B117 UK variant that's likely to become dominant in Florida very soon. But let's talk now about California. There are two variants there, B1427 and B1429. What do we know about those variants in California and how they're spreading? Yeah, this is a homegrown uh, version. This is not imported from anywhere else. It, it showed up mid last year, but it's been slowly creeping up and becoming more and more successful. And it has essentially replaced almost all of the previous ones. It's now more than 50% of all cases in California, some places even more than that. So we've seen that this variant has the triple threat properties. It is more contagious. How much more? The data is still unclear. It is possibly more severe. 
they're looking at rates of disease, so severe disease, and it's possibly evades neutralizing antibodies and laboratory studies to show that. Vaccine efficacy, we have to see for sure with an actual trial. But if it evades neutralizing antibodies in the lab test, it could have both some problems down the road. But at the same time, our vaccines are very good. So we'll have to see. But the triple threat, especially the more contagious part, is what I'm worried about. And the fact that it's replaced to become 50% of the total cases and possibly driving a lot of the Southern California outbreak in the past month is really concerning. And it's now in um, many, many uh, states, and I think now in 45 different states, but it's still epicentered on California. And at the same time, it's also competing with B117. So we have now potentially two, I say the two in California are almost the same. I call them one. Between that and B117, we have quite a bit of concern on the horizon. And what works now in mitigating the old 1.0 virus may not work against these new ones if it is more contagious. Well, Dr. Eric Feigel-Ding, those are all of my questions. Is there anything else that you'd like to leave our listeners in Florida with about the COVID-19 pandemic? I would say take the vaccine as soon as you can. Don't be picky about which one. Take it. It's safe. No one has ever died from the vaccine in any clinical trial. And the rates of success are really, really high. But still be careful in the first 14 days after you get any shot because that's when your immune system is still building immunity to it. Still wear a mask because there's still a chance of asymptomatic transmission, even if your disease is very, very mild or not even existent, but you could still be carrying it. So still wear a mask. And for schools, please, please tell your school district to ventilate. Ventilate with fresh air, open windows if possible. If you can't open windows and the and there's not good air system with fresh air, get a HEPA filter. I have no conflict of interest whatsoever, but get an air cleaner that will make sure you get five air exchanges per hour. And, you know, we can have a longer call about this, but this is clearly what we need to do to stop an airborne virus. Just because you don't see the virus, just because you're outside of six feet from someone does not protect you against an airborne virus. So please stay safe, everyone. Dr. Eric Feigel-Ding, thank you so much for coming on WMNF's Midpoint. I appreciate it. Thank you. Stay safe. Well, that was Dr. Eric Feigel-Ding, an epidemiologist and senior fellow at the Federation of American Scientists in Washington, D.C. And you can watch this interview. It's on our website, WMNF.org. I did try to call, uh, I tried to email Governor Ron DeSantis' office to get his response, but they did not respond to my interview request. You're listening to WMNF Tampa's Midpoint Monday. I'm Sean Canan. It's 12.25 in the afternoon. So we just heard a discussion there about the rise of variants, especially here in Florida and also in California. California and how that might affect the pandemic. Dr. Eric Feigel-Ding says April or May, there may be an, a spike as the B117 or UK variant replaces the what he calls the 1.0 version of the coronavirus. And that may lead to a spike in April or May here in Florida, which could spread elsewhere in the country. What do you think? The number to call is 813-239-9663. We're going to change gears and talk about the Florida legislative section session in just a second. But I do want to uh, read a couple of things. First of all, uh, the I'm reading from an article in Nature that came out about two weeks ago. And one, one of the... Um, 
sentences says, there's no question that the current vaccines are effective and safe. That's part of what this article says. And then there's a section about have investigators linked any deaths to a COVID-19 vaccine. Just want to read the first sentence of that section. Although some people have questioned whether the vaccines have led to deaths, none have been directly attributed to a COVID-19 jab. So uh, in case you've heard something from anyone if who have said that there have been deaths from the COVID-19 vaccine. The possibly the most uh, prestigious science journal in the in the world, Nature, uh, disagrees with that. There have been no COVID-19 deaths from the vaccine. So what do you think? 813-239-9663. Let me read a couple of emails before we switch over to the legislative session. Simon writes, please speak to the change in PCR test which very recently has reduced the cycle of spin of dictating the virus and then seeing the number of COVID down after the Biden administration. The test could also detect fragments of virus after you're no longer infected asymptomatic. I don't know what that refers to, Simon. I apologize. Um, and David writes, I bet there will be a super spreader events all over the state of Florida as kids from throughout the U.S. flock here for spring break. I wonder if this will be the busiest spring break in Florida history since many other states have stricter COVID-19 restrictions in place. Also, please let your listeners know that Florida's legislation, legislative session starts tomorrow and continues through the end of April. We need to be informed citizens, so pay attention to what's going on in the Florida legislature. Well, that's a good segue, David, because that's what our next topic is about. But on your point about spring break, oh man, I went to Paso Grill on Saturday night to watch the sunset and the moonrise, and I don't remember ever seeing the beach that packed in February. It was packed, and then around, I don't know, 8 o'clock, 7.30, I was trying to leave Paso Grill, and... I, I turned my car off. It was just bumper to bumper traffic for, for 30, 40 minutes getting off of Paso Grill. There were so many people there. And, you know, I, I know outside you don't wear masks all the time, but there were giant groups of people packed together on the beach face to face. It was pretty scary to me. All right, that's all I'll say about that. Let's turn to our next topic, the Florida legislative session, which, as David pointed out, does begin tomorrow. Democrats have introduced several bills to try to rein in gun violence. We'll speak with the sponsor of one of those bills, Miami area state Senator Annette Tadeo. Her bill would repeal the Florida law that forbids local jurisdictions from enacting gun laws that are more restrictive than state law. In this interview, we'll also talk about other gun bills, like a bill that would repeal Florida's stand your ground law. Another bill that would ban assault weapons and large capacity ammunition magazines and a Republican sponsored bill that would allow concealed carry permit holders to bring their weapons to religious schools that share a campus with a church. So if you have any thoughts on gun bills in Florida or about what we heard earlier about the coronavirus, I will open the phone lines up after this interview. The number to call in is 813 813- Two three nine nine six six three is twelve twenty nine in the afternoon, and you can also email DJ at wmnf.org or text eight one three four three three zero eight eight five. So here's the interview I recorded yesterday with State Senator Annette Tadeo. She's a Democrat for District forty in Miami. She ran for Lieutenant Governor in twenty fourteen on the ticket with Charlie Crist. You'll also hear her say during this interview that she's considering a run for Governor next year. Here's Annette Tadeo. Senator Annette Tadeo, I want to thank you for coming on WMNF's Midpoint today. Thank you. My pleasure. Well, I'd like to talk about legislation in the Florida legislature about 
guns. And one example that we can talk about is Senator Farmer has proposed a ban on assault weapons and on large capacity magazines. Is that a bill that you support and why? I am a co-sponsor of that bill, so I 100% support it. And, and the reason is because, frankly, we don't need that to go hunting. We don't need that. These are weapons of war. And there is absolutely no reason for us to have weapons of war uh, for self-defense or for the purposes of hunting. So I don't understand. Most regular folks uh, don't have them or use them. So we should not have them, the ones that ends up in the, in the hands of those that want to harm people. Have you heard from law enforcement about their position on this bill? You know, law enforcement is an interesting situation in, in the sense that most of them are very much able to own a gun, but at the same time, they all do not like the fact that so many of these weapons of war are out there. And in many instances, they are outgunned because they don't necessarily go into the street with these kinds of guns. Uh, they just have a regular handgun. And so they are outgunned when the bad actors... And I think most everybody, even those people who own guns, who like uh, to have their, their right to do so, and, and, uh, and no one is saying they shouldn't. Uh, we're just saying weapons of war don't, do not belong in the street. And we used to have this. So everybody has a little bit of perspective. We used to have this way back, and it sunsetted the law. It was a federal law. Um, it was after the Reagan attempt back when he was president, and it was passed, and it just allowed the sunset, and we literally saw a change. And so we have data to show what a difference it makes to not have these weapons of war, as I like to call them, on the streets. And there is no reason why we should not go back to where, the way it was, especially when we have data to back our position up as to how many less mass shootings we had, um, how many less incidents uh, we had, and we've had, the change has been night and day since it sunsetted. And one of the changes is that this bill, if it's passed, would ban large capacity magazines. How would banning large capacity magazines help things? Because those, I mean, again, the people that want large capacity magazines are the people that want to do harm. You don't need large capacity magazines to go hunting, and you don't need large capacity magazines uh, for self-defense. So the only reason someone would need these large capacity magazines is to do harm. And that's why I call them weapons of war. I mean, these are things to do the most amount of killing and the least amount of time. And every one of the mass murders that we have had has been because they've been able to convert their weapon into multiple rounds and before they have to reload. And that is really, again, not necessary for the reasons why we would need uh, to have a weapon for those that, you know, want to have a weapon. This proposed assault weapon ban has been proposed in the Florida legislature before and it has failed. It has not passed. Do you think that this year might be different and the Republicans even have a larger majority than they've had in the past? 
unfortunately, no. I don't. I, I have to be real and realistic and know that this is not something that they will even put on the agenda, even for us to have the discussion. So the influence of the NRA in the Florida legislature is well documented, unfortunately, and they run the show when it comes to legislation to do safety or any kind of legislation. And all you have to do is ask the Parkland parents about uh, what they've run into and the influence of the NRA is quite noticeable. And so the realistic thing is that it won't be heard. At least we're having conversations about it since we filed the bill and we are willing to say we are for this, no? To show the difference of what they want to do, which is nothing and what we want to do to try to protect the public uh, from these type of situations that we've had way too many, especially right here in Florida. Our guest is Senator Annette Tadeo with the Florida Legislature, and this is WMNF's Midpoint Monday. My name is Sean Canan. The next bill I want to ask you about when it comes to gun legislation in Florida is an exception in the Florida law where concealed weapons license holders can carry their guns pretty much any place in Florida except at schools. And even in private schools that share grounds with a church, that's the case. But there is a push this year to allow religious schools to have concealed weapons carry guns on their campuses. What are your thoughts about that, Bill? Well, they are they're pushing the needle. And like you just said earlier, their numbers went up as far as the legislature. So uh, the Republicans. So, yes, I see that they are pushing this. Hopefully, we'll be able to stop it as we have been able to stop it in the Senate. For the most part, we tend to stop really, really, really bad legislation. But in the past, we have had a couple of Republicans that are willing to come with us. I don't know that we have that anymore. I don't know that we might, but a lot of them are freshmen. And I don't know that they have the courage yet uh, to buck their party. We will find out, but I do think that that one is moving. That one is getting hearing. But, again, I remind everybody, in the legislature at the Florida House, they hear a lot of things that at the Florida Senate we don't necessarily hear or that we are able to stop because we tend to be, you know, a lot more moderate than the House where it's a lot more extreme. On the topic of guns in schools, but kind of switching to the national level, the founder of the group Moms Demand Action for Gun Sense in America, Shannon Watts, tweeted this month, she says, we should be talking about what happens when schools reopen because we know that about 50 million guns were sold in the past year, many to new gun owners who may not know how to securely store them, and nearly 5 million kids live in homes with unsecured guns, and most school shooters are students. So, on on the topic of that Florida legislation to potentially allow concealed carry weapons holders to bring their guns to religious schools, how would you put that in context of what we just heard, those statistics about guns in schools? It's a terrible idea. And again, I think anytime you have guns in schools, and by the way, they also are pushing for universities as well. And as you know, at universities, we have a lot of concealed carry permit holders for students who are adults. It's a very scary situation, and and frankly, one should feel safe going to school, but that's not the case if they have their way uh, with this legislation. 
So I agree with mom's demand and the data is there to prove the point. I mean, again, if we, we are, though, our numbers are not in our favor in the state of Florida as far as the legislature is concerned. And so we, we have a lot of work to do, <laughs> a lot of work to do to try to stop some of these very bad bills. On the topic of allowing guns at universities and for students to bring guns to universities, one of the things I've heard in the past when this has come up is that school administrators are worried that because of the stresses of college and because these young adults aren't fully emotionally and mentally developed, that there's a lot of concern from the administrators of more guns means more suicide attempts. 100%. And as a matter of fact, uh, this is a major, major problem. The suicide by guns, it's a pandemic, almost epidemic, I should say, of the suicide by guns. I just think we, we, you know, unlike other societies, when they really limit uh, the amount of guns in their society, we we are very different in America. And it has cost us a tremendous amount of lives by making it normal uh, to have guns. And we have a mental health crisis in our country. We really do. And we're not dealing with those issues and we don't have the health care. Many people don't have the health care to deal with those issues. So guns being so readily available makes it very, very easy uh, to unfortunately commit suicide. Our guest is Senator Annette Tadeo with the Florida Legislature, and this is WMNF's Midpoint Monday. I'm Sean Canan. The next bill I'd like to ask you about, Senator Tadeo, is a bill that was introduced to repeal Florida's Stand Your Ground law. Uh, what can you tell us about the law and why you support repealing it? Well, we all know about Stand Your Ground more than we wish we did because, of course, it has been used as a defense to commit murder by people uh, in Florida specifically. And uh, this law really should be repealed. It's outrageous that we even have it, uh, that somebody can just say that they feared for their lives when they're the ones who had a gun, the other person didn't have a gun, when they're the ones who, you know, clearly committed cold-blooded murder. But because this law exists, it lets them get away with it. So we have to repeal it. I believe this is a priority of of ours as Democrats. And if we ever get a Democratic governor, we should. That should be a priority that we do, which is repeal standard ground. Uh, there is also another bill I'd like to mention, and that is the repeal um, of the law that was passed to not allow local municipalities, counties, cities, uh, to pass their own legislation with regards to guns. It is uh, amazing to me that a lot of these politicians who claim, you know, to don't let the federal government tell us what to do at the state level, but somehow they turn around at the state level and want to tell cities and counties what to do. And I really think that Florida is so diverse. We have rural areas, we have agricultural areas, we have major metropolitan areas. We can't just say that every area should be run by Tallahassee, and Tallahassee should make decisions, and somebody from Dixie County should be saying to Miami-Dade County or Broward County or Hillsborough what to do. 
they're totally different circumstances, situations, and each community should have that right. A law was passed, and I am the sponsor of the repeal of that law, that each community is very, very different, and they should be able to make their own decisions. And we're also trying to repeal that very big encroachment on local home rule. I want to turn now to gun legislation nationally. I know that you're not a member of Congress, but I'm going to ask you your opinion since we're talking about guns right now. There's a push to require background checks on all gun sales in the U.S. And when Lucy McBath cast her vote in Congress, she said, for my son Jordan Davis, I vote I. The bill passed the House, but it has not passed in the Senate. So what are your thoughts about nationally requiring background checks on all gun sales? You would think this would not be controversial. Like, what is controversial about a background check? Every poll that I have seen of gun owners, they agree that responsible gun owners go through a background check. Why are non-responsible people being allowed to not follow the rules? And it's in everybody's best interest. So... Again, I know why they make this controversial, because of the influence of the NRA on certain politicians, and they're afraid of what the NRA will do to them. But, I mean, one would hope people would get elected to represent all the people. And like I said, even conservatives and gun owners agree that there should be a background check. You do not want a criminal or somebody with a history of domestic violence, for example, to own a gun for obvious reasons. And so it should be no nonsense. I can't believe that we have to work this hard to pass something that is as simple as a background check. Our guest is State Senator Annette Tadeo. This is WMNF's Midpoint Monday. I'm Sean Canan. Is there any other gun legislation in the state of Florida that I haven't mentioned that you'd like to talk about right now before we move on to other topics? There are a lot of them, but I would say that, you know, the the biggest ones are are these and repealing some pretty bad laws uh, would be even a first step, right? Not just repealing the over encroachment of Tallahassee on local communities to be able to protect their citizens, which is the job number one of any elected person. The bill called HB1 this year has to do with uh, opponents of it say it would be cracking down on protesters. Supporters say that it would be to control riots. What are your thoughts about HB1? I believe it's unconstitutional. We already have laws in our state and in our federal uh, government that gives us the right to protest. And if you want to live in a society where you want to not allow people to protest their government, to protest things that they're not uh, happy with, all you need to do is go 90 miles away to Cuba. And there you will see where artists are being beaten. They're being jailed because their songs dare to criticize the government. Are we now headed in that direction? Because this bill, this bill actually doesn't allow you to really have that freedom. Why do I say that? Local communities have to give you a permit, whether it's a city or a county, they have to give you a permit to protest. Well, if that protest that they gave you a permit for turns 
into some, not even violence, let's say a fight ensues. Because, as you know, when one group shows up to protest something, another group might come and be on the other side of the street saying the other side, right? And sometimes there are fights. Well, if that happens, the actual community, the city or the county, would now be liable for that, for anything that happens. So I don't foresee any elected official at the local or the county level giving a permit to protest because they don't want to take on the liability should it turn ugly. Second, there is that part of the bill that actually allows you with your car for you to run over any protester and then it's very similar to stand your ground and then after you kill them with your car you can say that your life you felt that your life was threatened and therefore you are not responsible for killing someone running someone over with your car I have never seen legislation so irresponsible in the entire time I have been involved in the Florida legislature. This is completely unacceptable. And again, in the middle of a pandemic, in the middle of a major emergency, this is the priority of Governor DeSantis. It's outrageous. It's wrong. And it should not be passed into law. And if it is, people should know what's in it and how bad it is. And all they're trying to do is to reelect Ron DeSantis and to scare their base into hating people that have a different color of their skin or in any way just scare them that they're coming after them and they're going to burn their business or whatever it is. Problems that Florida has not seen at all. Our guest is State Senator Annette Tadeo. This is WMNF's Midpoint. I'm Sean Canan. Florida voters added a $15 an hour minimum wage to the state constitution, but there's already a bill to weaken that constitutional amendment. How do you feel about making exceptions to Florida's $15 an hour minimum wage? Let me tell you something about the Florida legislature. The Florida legislature clearly has a hearing problem. The voters speak over and over loud and clear at the voting booth when they're asked questions. And they say, we want returning citizens to have the right to vote. What does the legislature do? They say, well, they didn't really understand, so let's make sure that they don't really have the right to vote. We tell them we vote, buy back the lands, protect our environment. What do they do? They don't fund buying back the lands to protect our environment. <laughs> and now we pass a law to raise our minimum wage to $15 an hour, gradually, mind you, not like it's like, wow, you know, snap of the hand and it's $15. No, it's gradual. And yet here comes the death Florida legislature saying the voters are stupid, the voters don't know what they were doing, so now we have to amend it and say, and here's where it comes, those kids under 21 will not make the minimum wage, and I think that's wrong. 
no one, when they were voting, they were saying, oh, but kids should be paid less. And then the other one is former prisoners. They should be paid less. And their argument, the Republicans' argument, is that, well, nobody wants to hire former prisoners. To which I say, you know what, that's not necessarily untrue. But don't take it out of the former prisoner's paycheck. If you want to encourage businesses to hire former prisoners or people who have paid their debt and their sentence, we should give them a tax credit to hire them. But don't have them wear a scarlet letter for the rest of their lives to be discriminated against simply because they made a mistake, they have paid their time. What is this about you get out of prison and then you're still somehow less than? It shouldn't be that way. And by the way, it doesn't make any economic sense because we spend $21,000 a year incarcerating people when we only spend $7,500 a year to educate them. So it's crazy. We should want them to stay out of prison, to earn a living wage, so that they don't have to go back to prison. But somehow they think this is a good idea. I think it's completely wrong. I also think it's unconstitutional because you're discriminated against certain people, and you can't do that. Senator Annette Tadeo, I want to ask you now about the coronavirus pandemic and how you think the state of Florida has handled it. How has your body, the Florida legislature, done, and how do you think that the governor has done when it comes to the coronavirus pandemic? The legislature has not been involved. Not that we didn't try. Certainly the minority, we asked for a special session to come back so we could deal with it, so we could help small businesses, so we could fix the unemployment system, which has been a complete debacle, and all the money coming from the federal government, the governor has just spent and hasn't even told us how he spends it. And according to our constitution in the state of Florida, that money has to go through the legislative body for us to decide how to spend it. That has not happened. And as we know, in addition to that, the governor has politicized the vaccine, which is very unfortunate because, again, you shouldn't have to know someone or have made a donation to his reelection or any of these things that are happening. It should not be how you get on a list to get a vaccine or whether your neighborhood or your zip code gets a vaccine because you know somebody uh, like the governor. It's completely unacceptable. I represent an area of the state, Miami-Dade County, that has had the highest number of COVID cases. But when you look at the percentages, we have not had the right, the percentage-wise, according to other areas, of vaccines, which is why I'm happy that after many of us started really calling on the White House to please start setting up some federal places, now, the big counties got federal places opened up within, you know, now this week, and we will start seeing more vaccines coming to our areas because the governor is not taking care of our areas. He's taking care of his friends and his donors. Our guest is Senator Annette Tadeo with the Florida Legislature, and this is WMNF's Midpoint Monday. You're critical of the governor. There will be a gubernatorial election next year, next November. 
What about your party? What Democrats do you think that might run for the office? And are you supporting anyone yet? <laughs> I think we're going to have a robust primary. And we have quite a few candidates that are looking at it, including myself. I ran statewide with Charlie Chris as his running mate. Uh, so I, I know quite well how tough these races are. But I think that we owe it to the state of Florida Regardless of Democrat or Republican, we owe it to the state of Florida to have some balance in Florida. It has been one party rule for over two decades of the governor's mansion, the legislature, both the House and the Senate. And it has been to the detriment of our residents, to the detriment of our kids and their education, to the detriment of our environment. And it really has not been to the benefit of Floridians as a whole. When whoever we elect, my hope is that it will be someone that can represent everyone and not just those in their party, whichever party, and those that support them. Um, like we're seeing right now during the middle of a pandemic, it should not be partisan. When you're in a pandemic, just like at the national level, when you're in a war, you know, we all come together and we work for the betterment of everyone. And that's not what's happening in the state. And that's not what's been happening for many, many years. And it's time that the Democrats get their act together and win, not for the benefit of the Democrats, but for the benefit of all Floridians. Well, Senator Tadeo, those were my questions. Is there anything else that you'd like to leave our listeners in the Tampa, St. Petersburg, Sarasota, Lakeland area about the Florida legislative session or especially about gun legislation that's coming up this year? I would say just pay attention. It's hard to pay attention, especially in the middle of a pandemic when people can't uh, necessarily travel. Our capital is closed to the public, so it just makes it very, very tough and and they're trying to get away with a lot when people are busy trying to just stay healthy and get their head above water in the middle of a very tough economic condition. So I would say pay attention to what's going on because that's when really, really bad laws are passed. And we need the voters to be alert to the bad things. Not so many good things, <laughs> mostly bad things that they're trying to pass. Senator Tadeo, thank you so much for coming on WMNF's Midpoint today. I appreciate it. Thank you. No, I appreciate you. Thank you so much. Enjoyed it. That's Florida State Senator Annette Tadeo, a Democrat from Miami. She's the sponsor of a bill that would repeal the Florida law that forbids local jurisdictions from enacting gun laws that are more restrictive than state law. You're listening to WMNF Tampa's Midpoint Monday. I'm Sean Canan. It's 12.56 in the afternoon. We have about five minutes left. If you have thoughts on anything that you've heard so far, give us a call at 813-239-9663. You can also email dj at wmnf.org or you can text 813 and uh, David in Pasco County has been waiting patiently. And let me put David on the air. Hi, what would you like to say, David? Uh, Sean, I'm an old-time Democrat. I'm going back to 1958. Ruben Askew, Bob Graham. Back in the days when Florida was true Florida to a lot of us that have been born here. I remember when Bob Martinez came in there and, and, and got that office and how things started to change. And it didn't seem to change for the better. And now under Republican control, I know that things haven't changed better. I'll be the first one to vote a Democrat back in office in the state of Florida. As far as gun control, I grew up on a ranch. 
had a gun as a young boy, tried to respect it, respect the people around it. Uh, you know, uh, guns are just a part of this state like it would be Texas, or maybe times will change for that, too. But I'm sure anxious to get a Democrat back in the state of Florida again. All right, David, thanks so much for calling in. Appreciate it. Thank you for that. And um, we're going to go to Dan in St. Petersburg in just a second. I want to give out the number again if you'd like to call 813-239-9663. Let me read this email or this text that came in. One of the texts from 727 area code says, good luck getting high capacity magazines off the street. I have 10 for each of my guns and I'm not even a gun nut. I voted Biden and marched in BLM protests. That's one of the texts that came in from anonymous in the 727 area code. Let's go now to Dan in St. Petersburg. Dan, thanks for calling. What would you like to say? Uh, Sean, I was out at the uh, beach and all over driving around yesterday. St. Pete Beach, past the grill for an hour or two. And, you know, I'm driving in Tampa now. The traffic's not bad. But there were so many people on the roads, on the beaches, everywhere. Nobody wearing masks. Everybody just outside enjoying themselves. And, you know, it's hard to say that, you know, why this thing doesn't spread? Why why are people getting sick? It's hard to justify uh, it's, it's hard to rationalize when you saw what you saw yesterday. So I want to just talk about what you saw yesterday and how does that relate to how we're dealing with this potential spike in a new variant? What do you think? Well, you know, I think it's too soon to tell because uh, if people were catching the coronavirus from each other yesterday, we won't see the cases show up for a few more days and we won't see the hospitalization show up for a few more weeks perhaps. So, um, you know, using yesterday or Saturday as a, uh, as a, just as a point in time isn't going to tell us anything yet, but I, it's just, it, to me, it's worrisome that it seems like people might be letting their guard down. I saw so many out of state license plates. I don't know. What are your thoughts, Dan? I'm just saying it's incredible that, you know, you see everybody around, and, and you see other countries going, how does Florida let this happen? But you, it, it's happening every day in Florida, man. And, it's, and we're, we're still keeping the economy afloat. It's just the dichotomy of, of people's thoughts here. I'm going to let you go, Dan, just because we have we're out of time. I can't tell. It sounds like you're make you're, you make be saying that uh, it's nothing to worry about. Half a million Americans have died. I don't know if that's exactly what you're saying, but um, it's definitely something worth being concerned about. I want to thank our phone wrangler, Frank Knox, and our engineer Alvaro Montealegre, and all the people who called in and texted. I'm Sean Canaan. I'm the host of Midpoint Monday. I want to tell you about a super special Midpoint next Monday. It's International Women's Day. Janet Sherberger will host a show about women titans of Florida politics. One guest will be former USF President and Florida Education Secretary Betty Castor. Please check out next Monday's International Women's Day Midpoint special with Janet. Tomorrow at noon, your hero Mark Bureau will host Midpoint Tuesday. Stay tuned now for Latino 54. That's coming up after NPR on WMNF.